Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Um, I have been trying to get Jerry and James on for a while. Um, They're very busy, two very busy men, uh, because the book that they have written, I think, is one of the most uh, important books this year. It's something that uh, every American, I think, should read and and take to heart, um, not only because of the specifics that it contains, uh, but also the implications about our national security and military. Um, Jerry Dunleavy is an investigative journalist, formerly of the Washington Examiner. He's now an investigator for the House Committee on Foreign Affairs, although he is talking about this book uh, in his private capacity. I got you. Don't worry, Jerry. Um, And James Hassan is a former Army captain and graduate of Ranger School and Afghanistan veteran who assisted in the veteran-led independent evacuation efforts surrounding the withdrawal from Kabul that we're going to be talking about today. Their book is Kabul, the untold story of Biden's fiasco. Um, Jerry, James, thank you so much for being on High Noon. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, I'm going to start off with a quotation from your book. Uh, You write, the deaths of the 13 American heroes of Abbey Gate and those of the innocent civilians they were attempting to save were neither inevitable nor the product of good faith decisions uh, poorly executed. So, you know, I guess back back that up, right? Because we know that bad things happen during military um, operations. We know that American service members die in uniform. These are risks that we accept. And we know that American politicians make bad decisions all the time about, uh, but you're saying something more in this book, um, that a lot of these consequences were completely predictable. In fact, they were predicted um, and that there were not, these are not sort of inevitable consequences of the withdrawal, nor are they merely you know, fate or chance or poorly executed good faith ideas. So, so back, back that up. Well, let me, let me just, let me just take one, one example to show why the Abbey Gate attack was not inevitable and why the, the deaths of those 13 service members weren't inevitable and why it wasn't inevitable that we'd be expanding our gold star family community by 13 people, uh, 13 families. So we just look at the decision to abandon Bagram Air Base. So Bagram was a massive air base that was right outside, uh, pretty close to Kabul, the capital city of Afghanistan. And this was our biggest, most strategic base in all of Afghanistan. Had numerous runways, um, would have been a much, much, much smarter place to try to do an evacuation from. And, uh, you know, our the House Foreign Affairs Committee received testimony from uh, Command Sergeant Major Jake Smith earlier this year, where he testified that State Department officials came and visited him at Bagram when he was uh, sort of a, a top uh, leader there and was being tasked with helping shut bases down around Afghanistan. And he told these State Department officials, you know, you cannot do an evacuation through Kabul airport. This is a tiny airport in the middle of a dense city. And by the way, it would, it would be an airport that would soon be completely surrounded by Taliban as they took the entire country. But Jake Smith said, you, if you're going to do an evacuation, you have to do it through Bagram. And there's a lot of reasons why. So Bagram is, has a lot of standoff distance, would have been a much safer place to do an evacuation from. We would not have seen the chaos that we saw at Kabul airport, people clinging to planes, falling from planes, crowds flooding the airport. You wouldn't have seen any of that. Um, Bagram would have given us the ability to continue to project some of our power across Afghanistan, because when we gave up Bagram, we pretty much gave up our ability to project power in any significant way in Afghanistan. So if we had maintained U.S. air assets there, we would have been able to continue to assist the Afghan army and Afghan air force. We very likely would have been able to keep the Taliban at bay from ever being able to take Kabul in the first place. Um, And on top of that, at Bagram, there were pretty massive prisons filled with terrorists and Taliban fighters that the U.S. and NATO and our Afghan allies had spent years putting behind bars. Among those prisoners were like 2,000 ISIS-K terrorists, including the guy who would go on to kill those 13 service members at Abbey Gate. His name is Abdul Rahman al-Lagri. The Biden administration kind of refuses to say say his name out loud because we abandoned Bagram on July 2nd, 2021. 
and as I've laid out, a terrible decision for so many reasons. But among those reasons is the first thing that the Taliban did when they took over Bagram, because we had abandoned it, they take it over on August 15th. They open the doors to those prisons. They free 2,000 ISIS-K terrorists, dozens of Al-Qaeda terrorists, as well as their own thousands of their own Taliban fighters. And those ISIS, a number of those ISIS-K terrorists go straight back to trying to kill Americans. And one of them succeeds at Abbey Gate just a week and a half later. So the reality is, if we had just held on to Bagram, it would have been smarter from a strategic standpoint, from a standpoint of helping the Afghan military, from a standpoint of keeping the Taliban at bay, from a standpoint of evacuating Americans and Afghan allies. But the simple fact is that that terrorist who killed those 13 Americans would have still been behind bars and that terrorist attack wouldn't have happened. And as if I can just jump in for 30 seconds to, to add uh, one one little point to that, uh, everything that Jerry just said is, is spot on. Uh, but uh, to, to your point about, you know, that this wasn't the product of good faith decisions, you know, poorly executed. Um, the decision to abandon Bagram was a political one and not a military. And I think that is, that's kind of what sets it apart from the run of the mill, um, you know, oh, oops, we made a strategic error. And that would have been bad enough because it's a massive error. Um, but the military told President Biden that they needed at least 2,200 people to be able to hold Bagram. And they asked repeatedly to be able to hold Bagram. Uh, Biden didn't want any more than 600 people in the country, which pound for pound would have put it equivalent to, uh, you know, defending any other you know, embassy in, in um, you know, the defense we have for any other embassy. So he only wanted 600 and you can't hold Bagram with 600. And uh, it was not a, it was not a military decision. It was a, a straight up political decision and it had uh, you know, deadly consequences. Yeah. Let's talk about another one of these political decisions that um, you highlight in this book. Um, you know, we just celebrated or, or, you know, I don't know if celebrate is the right word, but we just marked the 22nd anniversary of 9-11 at the same time marking the second year anniversary since the pullout from Kabul. Um, why you, you point out that it was very well known that this was the height of fighting season and a bad time uh, to execute this kind of operation. Why was that decision made uh, to do it in the middle of September? Um, and what consequences did that have? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's hard for me to give you a, a logical answer for a very illogical decision, um, but uh, we have been in Afghanistan, or we have been in Afghanistan for twenty years. We know that you know, beginning early spring, the mountain passes um, that have been blocked by snow throughout all winter start to thaw. Um, people can start moving around from Afghanistan back in or Pakistan back in Afghanistan. Um, the terrain becomes easier to maneuver on and, and that's spring and summer is, is when the fighting happens. I mean, it's, it's called fighting season for a reason. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's kind of possible to get inside uh, Joe Biden's head on this, but for whatever reason, he thought that the 20th anniversary of nine 11 would be some kind of, uh, you know, symbolic victory, um, to, you know, uh, to, to set as our, our time for, for leaving. And the Taliban at the time, I, of course, saw it just as a, an admission of defeat. You know, 20 years after we came and we killed 3,000 of you or, or let Al-Qaeda do so, um, 20 years to the day, now you're leaving and we're back in charge. Uh, and, but what, what it did is that we started kicking um, kind of the legs out from, from the Afghan military in terms of uh, contractor support, air support, um, and all of the different enablers that we brought to the table precisely when the Taliban offensive was really ramping up. So it was just a, a, a complete comedy of errors. Um, and, and again, the military warned that this would be the case and uh, that they, they couldn't figure out why September 11th was, uh, you know, this date we were supposed to, you know, this great date for us. Um, and, and I don't think even Joe Biden really knew. Because he ended up moving it up to August thirty first. Um, yeah. Let's so let's let's uh, then go through a number of these decisions. Some of the ones that shock me. I mean, there's really just 
so many of these that you, you write about, it's impossible to, to uh, go through all of them. You'll have to buy and read the book to find uh, that list. But uh, can you tell me about two more of these decision points uh, that really shocked me? One was this meeting back home um, of top brass that was so disconnected from what was going on in Afghanistan that they, they adjourned until tomorrow, right? Uh, because they didn't understand that the situation on the ground would change radically in the next 24 hours. Uh, and, and the second one, so tell me about uh, the, the uh, service member who testified that, in fact, not only did we know who uh, the, these ISIS-K terrorists were and, and that they were likely to, to try and attack um, against the, the remaining American service members, but that actually we had an opportunity to shoot this guy uh, and, and that um, the, the, the top brass of the military decided that this, this would, you know, they decided not to, to go for um, a raid on where these guys were or even um, this particular terrorist uh, who one of the service members says that he actually had in his sights as a sniper. Is that correct? I mean, yeah. So let me, let me, let me, let me take, let me take the first, uh, let me take the first piece. So this is the, this, this, uh, national security council interagency meeting on the eve of the Taliban taking over Afghanistan. And so you have a lot of the top members of the Biden administration related to Afghanistan all getting together. Um, and this is right before the Taliban walks into Kabul and takes the capital, like this is the day before, and they have not figured out the most basic things the Biden administration has not, um, the, sort of, the sorts of things that they should have figured out months before. Uh, things about what, what's our priority in terms of who to get out? Where, where are we gonna send people when we get them out? These are like called lily pads or third, uh, third countries. There was no real plan in place about where we would, once we got someone on a plane at Kabul airport, where are we going to send them? Uh, what, how, are we gonna, how are we getting Americans out? What about all of the tens of thousands of Afghan allies and SIV, special immigrant visa um, applicants? They were still putting together the most basic stuff um, and uh, decided to, you know, get together to meet the next day to continue to finalize things. And by the time the next day rolled around, the Taliban was in charge of Kabul. And those thousands of Americans were stuck behind Taliban lines. Those tens of thousands of Afghan allies were stuck behind Taliban lines. And so this this evacuation that was eventually declared wasn't even officially declared until after the Taliban had taken over the capital of Kabul. And so you see the Biden administration's blindness to what was happening on the ground then put the evacuation, these, you know, military service members who had to go back in and just hold a tiny airport with the Taliban outside the gates. It put the U.S. military and those service members in just this impossible situation where we hadn't even started an evacuation and now we're starting an evacuation when the Taliban's in charge and we have to rely on the Taliban to provide security. And that kind of dovetails into some of the other stuff that we found, including the fact that we had to ask, then the US military had to ask the Taliban to search and raid ISIS-K locations um, in Kabul um, once the Taliban had taken over and we were doing the evacuation. So while we're doing this evacuation, while we're trying to get thousands of Americans out, tens of thousands of Afghan allies out. And while we have thousands of our Marines and other troops exposed, we're relying on the Taliban to take care of the ISIS-K threat. And what we now know, I think because of our book, the Pentagon has now admitted that, you know, because in our book, we write about one such instance where we asked the, the, the Taliban to raid an ISIS-K location, the Taliban refused. The Pentagon has now said that there were more than 10 instances where we had to ask the Taliban to take care of an ISIS-K, a potential ISIS-K threat, and the Taliban would often say no. And so this is sort of the, the position that all of these bad, this cascade of bad decisions had put us in. And now 
were relying on the Taliban. And we saw how that played out. I mean, you know, when, when you see the first thing that the Taliban does when they take over Bagram is open the doors to thousands of ISIS-K prisoners, it's a pretty good sign that they're probably not going to be a very good defense partner uh, against ISIS-K when they're letting them run loose. And then when one of those uh, guys that they freed comes and kills us. So the entire evacuation was just sort of this in, insanely stupid and dangerous situation. You saw that play out with the limitations that the U.S. military had and that the, the, perhaps the limitations that the military was placing on itself with the fear that if we anger the Taliban, the Taliban will just shut everything down and that'll be game over and whoever's left behind will be left behind. So that's the situation that President Biden's decisions put us in. Yeah, and I think one thing to add to that is, is that the the Biden administration has not wanted to talk about any of this. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why we, we wrote Kabul is because uh, they're not going to hold themselves accountable and somebody needs to. But but the reason why you know they don't want to talk about the fact that we asked the Taliban to uh, raid ISIS-K locations and they didn't, um, or that uh, we had to, um, we decided not to um, conduct an airstrike against the ISIS-K operative on August 24th, two days before the bombing uh, in, in Nangalhar, which is ISIS-K's uh, you know, stronghold, due to, quote, negative response from the Taliban. Um, and the reason why they can't admit this is because they have been on record telling the American people, and they were throughout the evacuation, that um, you know, the Taliban was, quote, businesslike and professional. Um, and that they were, you know, our partners in this somehow all of a sudden, um, you know, after we'd just been fighting them for 20 years. And, uh, and, and, and to that point, they also didn't want to, you know, admit that the same Taliban was beating Americans, uh, beating Afghan allies, confiscating passports when people were trying to get uh, through to the gates and, and even executing um, Afghan allies in full view of U.S. troops. So that the narrative that they spun is is just 180 degrees uh, backwards for, from reality, and and we lay that out in common. I realize this is somewhat a na- of a naive question, and and um, you guys spend this book explaining you know how some of these decisions got made, um, but just from the pure American citizen, ten thousand foot view, you know how did the richest country in the world with the most powerful and effective military force in the world mm-hmm. end up playing from this defensive crouch in this withdrawal against the Taliban? Like, why were we so reliant? And I, I realize what you're saying. I mean, there was this cascade of decisions, but like, it, it seems so utterly humiliating. I mean, it's humiliating enough after 20 years of American blood and treasure to leave the country in the same hands that it was in when we started, in many cases, you point out the same people or their sons, right? Um, and and that brings up all kinds of... And I, but it seems like the failure of Afghanistan generally is, has never been military. It's been in what to do with the country and sort of political. This was a military operation. How is it that our incredibly powerful and... and um, you know, excellent military found itself in this defensive crouch where, you know, to make a decision to, uh, you know, kill a terror known terrorist leader who is targeting Americans, we had to basically think about what the Taliban is going to say about it. Yeah, it, it's a great point, because if you want to talk about all the failures in Afghanistan, obviously, there, there are 20 years of them. Uh, yeah, it, it would it would take thousands of pages, uh, probably more than anyone wants to read to really go through all of them. But uh, to your point, this is a purely, you know, an evacuation like this. It, it's a military operation. It's supposed to be led by the State Department under, under doctrine. Uh, the State Department kind of calls the shots in terms of getting Americans out, getting allies out, and how that's prioritized, and the military uh, executes. But at, at the end of the day, it's, it's, a military, uh, it's, it's a military operation. And... Um, Failure, you know, failure is a choice. Decline is a choice. And um, the administration had, had absolutely no desire to uh, get in any kind of conflict with the Taliban once they were 
um, in Kabul. And, and, and Jerry um, can hop in in a minute to talk about kind of how it came to be that we agreed to let the Taliban, um, you know, quote, handle security. Uh, but uh, it, 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 you know, there was no, there was no desire to, to confront the Taliban. And, and that started um, from the, from the very top. And so uh, it used to be back in the day that a blue passport was the most valuable document in the world, an American passport, because it meant that if you're in trouble in some war zone, if, if you've been taken captive, that, you know, whoever is, whoever's bothering you has to deal with the full force of uh, the American military. And, and you see that even in, you know, like Navy SEALs killing Somali pirates to, you know, to rescue a small crew of Americans who are on a shipping vessel. Um, right. I mean, this this is like and, and, a quintessential now, part of American foreign policy. I mean, even when yeah. we were not a global power, when we were a pipsqueak on the far side of the world, the impressment of American soldier or of American sailors into foreign militaries on the mm-hmm. open seas was cause for war with the That's United war. States. Yeah. It's like the most yeah. basic American doctrine. Uh huh. And, and that's and that's that's really one of the most damning things about all of this is that the administration basically took that precedent and, and ripped it to shreds. Um, and they they knew that by August twenty fourth they knew that uh, they weren't they weren't going to get every American out by the thirty first, uh, and yet the administration was still telling everyone that they could. But that was it, it was a knowing decision to to leave Americans behind. Um, and I'll let Jerry talk about the the specifics because actually how we came to rely on the Taliban is is something that has been discussed enough in my opinion. Well, you know, all that I'll add is that this idea, this Biden administration plan for Afghanistan was that they thought that they could, Biden thought and the State Department thought that pretty essentially all U.S. troops would be able to exit Afghanistan, despite the Taliban being on the march, but that we'd be able to pull our troops out, but at the same time, we'd be able to maintain our largest embassy in the entire world with, you know, a a tiny, tiny, tiny number of uh, troops there to, to guard it, quote unquote, but certainly not enough to guard it against, you know, a a marching army like, like the Taliban. Um, So this was just hubris. It was, it was this idea that we could, despite all of the warnings that pulling all of us troops and us contractors and us logistics would essentially be the death knell for the Afghan, for an already weak Afghan military. The people in the Biden administration thought that we could do all those things, but then still just keep an embassy open and slowly, you know, get an American out here and get a couple few Afghan allies out there. And it was just total hubris because we, as we pulled our troops out and all of our contractors out, the Afghan military, you know, many of them fought and many of them died, by the way, in 2021. But the Afghan military writ large collapsed and the Taliban took the country and the Taliban is now in charge of the country and in charge of Kabul. And the United States hasn't done any of the things that we needed to do uh, in terms of getting Americans and Afghan allies out. And so it was just pure, pure, pure hubris. And, you know, an, an interesting anecdote that kind of set up the situation where we are now as the U.S. military relying on the Taliban outside the gates of Kabul airport is that uh, CENTCOM Commander General Frank McKenzie uh, flew to Doha in Qatar um, around August, the sort of August 14th, August 15th timeframe and uh, went to meet with uh, one of the Taliban's top leaders, their top political negotiator, his name is Bardar, and he's still a, a top member now of the the new ruling Taliban government. Um, but Mackenzie went to meet with Bardar and walked in sort of with a map of Kabul with sort of a perimeter circle outside the city and told Bardar, you know, the Taliban's not allowed to come inside this circle. Uh, and Bardar said, well, I have bad news for you. Not only are we inside that circle, but we're knocking on the door of Kabul itself. Uh, so what do you want to do? And uh, Bardar actually offered um, 
that uh, Bardar made an offer, the Taliban leader made an offer that the U.S. would be able to take over security of the city of Kabul for the final two weeks of August if we wanted to. And uh, Mackenzie has testified that he turned that offer down. And so the Taliban walked into Kabul, took the city, and were sitting outside the gates. And so the United States was then relying on the Taliban for security. And as I like to point out, and and everyone should read this in the book Kabul, this just wasn't just any Taliban. Um, Obviously, the Taliban as a group is a very terrible, evil terrorist group, but the specific element of the Taliban that was had come to power in Kabul and that was in charge right outside Kabul airport was called the Haqqani Taliban. And these were, uh, the Haqqanis are very closely allied with Al-Qaeda. Um, the Haqqanis have a suicide squad called the Badri 313. And that suicide squad was providing quote unquote security outside of Kabul airport. We write in the book that one of these Haqqani leaders said the first thing that he did when he showed up at Kabul airport was surround the airport with a thousand suicide bombers. Um, So these were the Taliban that we were relying on. And again, when a group shows up and the first thing that they do is they brag about surrounding, surrounding you with a a thousand suicide bombers, not exactly what you want out of your security partner, but that's who we were relying on. And I think that we, we make a case in the book that, you know, sort of the, these, uh, these Haqqani Taliban, it's, it's very possible that they may have let this, this bomber slip through, but either way, relying on these guys, guys who were responsible for the deaths of, you know, thousands of American service members, um, over the years, relying on them to provide security for you was a dangerous and uh, we think ultimately a deadly decision. Yeah. So let me um, maybe take the the devil's advocate position for a moment. Um, you know, obviously the the war in Afghanistan was incredibly unpopular after 20 years. Uh, multiple presidents had already. So we have Trump and Biden both running on withdrawal from Afghanistan or wrapping up the Afghanistan war. Um, And what would you say to people who say basically that, you know, Biden made a series of decisions um, against the advice of his military advisors because the, the same military advisors had been advising for 20 years that we can't leave Afghanistan. And therefore when they were saying, mm-hmm. Oh, this is impossible or that's impossible. It was falling on deaf ears because they were saying it's impossible for us to leave for the last 20 years. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a great point. Um, and one of the, 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 the things that we emphasize in the, in the prologue um, to Kabul is that regardless of, of where you fall um, in terms of the debate about whether or not we should have stayed with a few thousand or whether we should have, um, just completely packed up uh, is kind of immaterial because just the way that the withdrawal itself was handled was a complete disaster and things didn't have to turn out the way that they did. Um, but but it is an interesting question about, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of generals who kept going in front of Congress for 20 years and, and kind of, you know, saying success is right around the corner in Afghanistan. And there is there is a bit of a you know, like a, a credibility issue at some point, but what uh, what they weren't arguing for at that point was, you know, continuing to stay after the decision was made to withdraw and to leave. At that point, it was simply, in our professional military, you know, opinion, based on our expertise, this is the way we have to do it, and if you don't, people are going to get killed. And um, they didn't do it that way, and lo and behold. Fortunately, um, people died. Um, so let's move to the, the part of this that in some way is the most enraging, which is accountability. Um, how many of the people we're discussing, whether it's at the State Department or um, among the, the top uh, leaders of the military or any like diplomatic you know, leadership, how many of those people have been fired? Precisely zero. No accountability whatsoever. No one's been fired. Uh, no one resigned. Um, 
I mean, some people have been promoted, right? Uh, you know, the, the only, and I don't, I don't call this accountability, but I think that perhaps the only, the only sense of an impact really that's even tangentially related to accountability is that um, President Biden's approval rating took a, an incredible hit during the debacle in Afghanistan in August 2021. And I, I think that it happened because there were some people that were willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Some people thought that maybe his years and years and decades of uh, experience in Washington, D.C. Might make, might make him a competent leader. But I think that the mask really came off there. And, and people saw he, he was incompetent and this this uh, this aura of empathy that he had built up over the years and over the decades was pretty much a farce, because the, there there was no empathy here in the way that he he did this, and there was no competency. It was incompetent, and it was uncaring, um, and it was a disaster. Um, and so President Biden took a still lasting hit in his approval rating, and that it might be unrecoverable. Um, for him, perhaps he he ekes out a win in 2024, but his his uh, his approval rating um, seems to be unrecoverable at this point. And it 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 started because of the debacle uh, in Afghanistan. And all that I would say is that there are efforts to you know to gain accountability. Obviously, the House Foreign Affairs Committee is investigating this in depth, um, and you know there needs to be accountability. Um, part of accountability is getting answers about what happened, um, so that it can be properly identified every bad decision that was made and can be hung around their necks. Um, and it's also important to make sure that this doesn't happen again, um, because, you know, the fallout from the the war in Afghanistan, I, I don't think that anyone can deny that two years later, we're living in a more dangerous world. Uh, and at least part of it is because of the debacle that that happened in Afghanistan. So part of accountability, part of why accountability is important is to make sure that something like this never happens again. To have a 20 year war end in such a debacle and such disaster with the Taliban back in charge and Americans and Afghan allies left behind. It's it's a dereliction of duty and it's 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 dangerous and it can't it can't happen again in the future. Like we we can't afford it. So let's let's name names here. Who needs to be called before Congress and humiliated in front of the entire nation? I mean, as as a point about accountability, uh, it's just just like the perfect illustration of why this is so hard to swallow. As far as I know, and I don't think you guys mentioned him. If you did, I I missed it in in this book because um, he wasn't directly related to a lot of what you were writing about. Uh, but the the um, lieutenant colonel who went viral because he knowingly uh, called out his superiors um, for making such devastating mistakes in Afghanistan. And it's real clear in the video, like he understands what he's doing, that his career in the military is over, that he's probably going to be court-martialed. And he he was. Um, this is Lieutenant Colonel uh, Scheller. Okay. As far as I know, he's still the only person who's been court-martialed or suffered any consequences as a result of this debacle in Afghanistan and none of the people who made decisions that actually killed people. Um, and, and, and as you write here convincingly in a totally unnecessary way uh, have suffered at all for that. So what's the list of people who need to be essentially brought before the American people and made to answer for the decisions that they've made here? Yeah. I, I think obviously if you're the commander in chief, um, the buck stops there, but, um, that goes without saying, uh, but I would say particularly uh, Secretary of Defense Austin uh, and Secretary of State Blinken have a lot to answer for. Uh, yep, Austin at one point bragged uh, early on during the process that he didn't think that anybody knew um, more about how to, um, you know, conduct a, a retrograde and, and get. American troops and people and uh, um, equipment out of the country better than he did. Um, and obviously 
Uh, the results speak for themselves. Uh, but Secretary Blinken as well. I mean, the State Department failed just from from top to bottom, and we lay that out very convincingly uh, in Kabul. And um, he, he was warned as well. I mean, we talk about this in our book Kabul as well. That um, you know, Blinken was was warned in July that that this was coming down the pipeline, and those he ignored those warnings as well. And uh, he's never provided a satisfactory answer for that, and, and nobody has. What do you think, Jerry? Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and, uh, you know, Sec- Secretary Blinken um, has a lot to answer for because of the failures at the State Department, as does Secretary Austin because of the failures um, with the Pentagon. Um, and, you know, there are there, there are other people as well um, that will need to answer for this. And I, and I would just note, because I'm trying to walk the line here, because I, you know, I'm not, I'm not speaking on behalf of the committee, but um, the House Foreign Affairs Committee has asked a lot of people from the Biden administration who are involved in the debacle in Afghanistan to to come in and talk to the committee, um, and so that's going to be an important part of achieving accountability and getting answers. And all that I would add is that, you know, we kind of lay this out um, in the book. I, I think that. Oftentimes questions get raised about President Biden's age and his fitness for office. Um, And I think a lot of the time, those are extremely fair questions to raise, whether his age is really degrading his ability to handle the job of commander in chief and and whether he is truly making all of the decisions in the Biden White House. But when it comes to Afghanistan and it comes to the, the debacle in 2021, the conditionless withdrawal uh, and the disastrous evacuation. This was President Biden top to bottom. This was being driven by him. This was his decision um, and it was his choice. And he was the one that picked uh, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. He was the one that wouldn't listen to anyone around him. He's the one that ignored Republicans and even some Democrats in Congress who told them that, told him that this is going to end in disaster. I mean, This is, in terms of foreign policy decisions that President Biden has made, this one has his fingerprints on it more than anything else. This was his decision, and this this disaster is ultimately on him. Yeah, and you you bring up some history I didn't know, that Joe Biden, one of the ways he first made his bones in Congress was by being uh, vociferously opposed to taking care of our allies after the fall of Saigon. in, in, in Vietnam. So this is not a new kind of right. position. I, I want to ask you guys a really difficult question, and I'm going to be very careful with how I'm asking it, because of course, I don't want to imply that, and, and if anything, this, this book is full of stories of incredible heroism and competency from the pe- from people who are essentially handed an impossible job. But the part that I want to ask you about is how do people feel about the sense of dishonor in this job? Because it's a very different thing. You're writing about, you know, U.S. troops having to stand by while, you know, allies were executed in front of them, having to rely on the Taliban. I mean, there's there's um, this is like a different kind of thing to deal with psychologically than, you know, the already difficult facts of war of, of losing your friends or watching your friends die like that this they were put in a position where they could not behave naturally or or correctly um you know how are people dealing with that because yeah. it seems to me like the, the biggest betrayal of the people above them is to put them in those kinds of positions i you know i, I it's i'm glad you asked um we we spent a lot of time talking to a lot of the the marines and the the soldiers who were at the gates and a lot of them, um, you know, a lot of the, the people at the gates were these 18, 19, you know, 20 year old uh, junior enlisted soldiers and Marines. Um, and one thing that, that came up over and over was this concept of moral injury. Um, and and it, it's been very, very difficult um, for them to, to reconcile because, you know, the, the, the idea being that you're forced to, to watch or prevented from, you know, intervening while all kinds of uh, horrific things are, are happening around you. And, um, you know, and I think that, that that's definitely, uh, 
I think something that, that that's been tough for a lot of, a lot of them. And it's also one of the reasons we wanted to write the book to just be able to tell their stories. Um, and I think we do that um, largely through their own words in Kabul and um, you know, but, but, but to your broader point, it, it, what was the position that they were placed in was um, incredibly immoral and unjust. And, um, you know, and uh, they performed heroically, but, but it, they never should have been there in that position in the first place. I don't know if yeah. you want to add and, anything, Jerry. I mean, I, you know, I, I've talked to a, a good number of the Marines who were on the ground, um, including a, a bunch of them who were at Abbey Gate. And yeah, I mean, this was um, this was an impossible situation. They were set up to fail. Um, they were set up to fail by um, primarily by President Biden, um, their commander in chief. They were set up to fail, um, you know, with but within this disastrous, impossible situation they were put in, you know, I don't want people to lose sight of the fact that these these service members um, did help get out thousands oh, yeah. of Americans, um, many that thousands of Americans. Risk. Now, look, that <laughs> a lot of Americans were also left behind, and but that is that's not on the the service members. Um, that that is on the political decision making in D.C. and the State Department failing to plan and setting this entire thing up for failure. But, you know, these Marines and these, you know, these, these army soldiers and others, you know, they, they did perform heroically within the insane uh, limitations and strictures that were placed on them. Um, and so I don't want people to lose uh, sight of uh, the incredible things that they were able to accomplish, even as the, the entire situation and the entire evacuation did end ultimately in failure because of the, you know, essentially being set up for failure because of the Biden administration and Americans and Afghan allies being left behind. Um, but yeah, I mean, the concept of moral injury is something that these troops uh, bring up and a lot of them are, are still, are still dealing with it. We hope that the, the book is cathartic um, in some ways. And some of these, uh, you know, Marines have, you know, they, they have groups, they talk to each other, they're talking through this stuff and, and dealing with it. And there, there's a group called Operation Allies Refuge Foundation that's doing very good work with veterans of the Kabul airport evacuation with bringing those guys together to, to tell their stories. So, but it's, it's important, um, you know, it's important to us that we were able to tell some of those stories in our book and, you know, encourage people to, to give it a read. Um. Let me turn now to the the larger sort of geopolitical consequences of America. You know, I think I said this when I, I did uh, two years ago while this was going on. I had Joey Jones on to talk about this withdrawal as it was happening. And I asked him then, you know, what do you think the consequences of America essentially showing its ass to the world uh, are going to be? And And so now two years later, um, what what do you think the consequences of showing this level of moral indifference um, from from the top levels and, and overall just this level of complete incompetency, uh, political weakness, you know, inability uh, to execute even something, you know, even even something in retreat, right? Um, what what consequences has that had for America's standing in the world and the and the the our interests in the world and the way we project power? Yeah, I think uh, yeah, the, the final few chapters in, in our book, Kabul, really lay out how disastrous this has been and what those consequences um, have been in, in detail. So we have one chapter talking about Russia, Russia's decision to invade Ukraine. Uh, you can draw a very um, direct line between what happened in Kabul and uh, you know what happened um, in Kiev. And uh, the immediately after uh, we kind of showed this weakness and this uh, indifference to our allies, uh, Russia started building up their forces uh, on the Ukrainian border. Uh, it, it began in September of 2021, almost right after we showed this weakness. Uh, and, and China 
for, for that matter, uh, immediately labeled this the, quote, Kabul moment. And the, one of the last chapters of our book is called the, the CCP and the Kabul moment, because that's how they, that's how they defined it. And that immediately, um, their, their propaganda mouthpieces and their, their, you know, Ministry of Foreign Affairs would uh, you know, start saying basically to Taiwan, hey, look, you're next. Um, because you see, you know, like America is not going to um, stand by you. And uh, they've become increasingly belligerent towards Taiwan in these past two years. Uh, and even now, just on the, the second anniversary of um, of the, the, the collapse of Kabul, the Chinese foreign ministry, again, uh, described it as the, quote, Kabul moment. Um, and there are also a lot of practical effects, right? There's, there's the equipment that was left behind. A lot of that's now in the hands of terrorist organizations, other of terrorist organizations, other than the terrorist organization that's in charge of Afghanistan right now. And, uh, and also Iran was, uh, and other countries, uh, other adversaries have been, uh, you know, trying to recruit and debrief uh, former Afghan commandos who we left behind, who served alongside uh, U.S. special operations units. Uh, and it's basically to get intelligence about how does, you know, military special operations, uh, you know, plan their missions? How do they, you know, what are their capabilities? How do they react in certain circumstances? Uh, so it's really, it's just had a whole cascade of second and third order effects. Look, I, I think James summed that up extremely nicely. Um, you know, what happened in Afghanistan didn't stay in Afghanistan. And there's, there's no doubt that this was this debacle in Afghanistan was was taken into account by Putin when he was making his calculations, seeing the U.S. and NATO in a shambles. He's wanted to invade Ukraine for a long time, but, but he had never done a full invasion until now. And we make a very strong case that it was because he saw this as his moment because because of the debacle in Afghanistan. And yeah, China taking advantage of it as well to threaten Taiwan and like I said, I just no one can no one can make a plausible argument that we are not living in a more dangerous world two years later than than we were. Because we are, we are living in a more dangerous world than we were two years ago. We have a massive war on the European continent, and we have China inching closer to an invasion of Taiwan. And I think that the debacle in Afghanistan contributed to that, and that's a shame. Um, I guess I'll wrap up with this. You know, what is the current situation in Afghanistan? Um, because even on this anniversary, right, we didn't talk about it. We talked about 9-11, but not the anniversary of this. Are there still Americans essentially trapped in Afghanistan? Are there um, SIVs? Are there our allies that, you know, in many cases fought alongside us for 20 years? What What is the current situation now that we are completely withdrawn in such a you know, terrible and, and unexecuted way, right? Yeah. Um, well, there are tens of thousands of, of Afghan allies who are left behind. And, you know, some of them have, have been killed. Others have been gone, have gone into hiding. Um, and, but there are also Americans. Um, we do know there are Americans being held by the Taliban right now. And, uh, it, you know, we, we try to talk about that with, with some, sensitivity and, and kind of, um, and care because, um, you know, uh, of the dynamics behind kind of the scenes and, and to make sure that, uh, you know, family's wishes are honored, uh, and so forth. But, um, but, but it is a fact that there are Americans there, there are Westerners being held. And also there are, are a lot of, uh, allies who we promised to bring to America if they fought alongside of us, who, uh, we just abandoned, who are still there as well. And in, in terms of the, the Taliban itself, um, you have Sirajuddin Haqqani, who is a designated terrorist by the State Department and the, the FBI. Um, he is, uh, you know, in charge of uh, important ministries in the Taliban uh, government. And he's also considered by many to not just be a very close ally of al-Qaeda, but to essentially be a card-carrying member of al-Qaeda Itself, there are um, other members of the Taliban government. Uh, the governor of uh, Kabul province, 
the deputy director of the Taliban's intelligence agency um, and others who are considered to be dual-headed members of the Taliban and al-Qaeda as well. And so it's a, obviously a very dangerous situation. And that's to say nothing, uh, of course, uh, that's to say nothing of the, the human rights situation there is extremely bleak. Um, you know, w- women have essentially no rights in Afghanistan. It's back to what it was in the 90s where uh, women aren't able to work. They're not able to get educated. They're forced to stay in their homes. Um, and so it's it's a bleak situation for half the population and not particularly fun for the for most of the other half the population either because, you know, massive poverty and starvation under the Taliban as well. But um, look, the, the Taliban government is is dangerous. Um, we, we know that they are protecting and funding uh, al-Qaeda, and there are a number of other terrorist organizations that are flourishing in Afghanistan as well. The Pakistani Taliban has become emboldened and is uh, back to launching uh, big attacks um, inside of Pakistan as the Pakistani Taliban attempts to um, you know, overthrow the Pakistani government and set up an Islamic emirate of the sort that the, their friends in the Afghan Taliban have done. So, yeah, I mean, it's not it's not a good situation. We left behind a very um, a very dangerous situation in Afghanistan, and you know, it's just it's just the the bizarre thing to go back to this Biden picking the 20th anniversary of 9/11 for the withdrawal for the full withdrawal date, and what that ended up meaning was that the Taliban, the group that had harbored al-Qaeda on 9-11, was back in charge on the 20th anniversary. I mean, it's just, it's a pretty, it's a pretty dark, um, a pretty dark situation. Um, Jerry, James, Jerry Dunleavy, James Hassan, uh, their book is Kabul, The Untold Story of Biden's Fiasco. I, I think not only is this, you know, worth reading because it exposes much of what has not been you know, really investigated by the media after this, but but I, I think it's really necessary. Everyone, uh, I really recommend everyone go out and buy this book, uh, if for no other reason than to ha- increase the number of people who have, at least in their minds, the correct story of what what happened here. Because it's if nothing else, it's worth remembering. Um, James, Jerry, thank you so much for for joining High Noon today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. You can find it uh, in all the places where you uh, get your podcasts from Apple Podcasts, um, Acast, Google Play, and more. Um, we'll s- Until next time, be brave. We'll see you at High Noon.